There was a time that a sip of Robinson's at the change of ends was sufficient for a Wimbledon champion. That time is gone. Andy Murray and Novak Djokovic, tennis's number one and two players, have both cited diet changes as key reasons for their success in recent years. Similar stories can be drawn from all corners of the sporting world. Over the last decade or so, as sporting performances got better and the margins between winning and losing become narrower, nutrition has become a much more important part of sporting success. Amateur sports people too are becoming more conscious of what they consume. And today it's not just specialist running or cycling shops which stock protein bars and specialist carbohydrate pouches. You'll find them on almost all supermarket shelves. Science in Sport is one of the companies that makes those bars and pouches. The company was founded in 1992 and in 2013 listed on AIM with a value of £4.6 million. Today it's roughly 10 times the size of that. I'm Megan Boxall, and in this episode of Boardroom Talk, I've been joined by Science and Sports Chief Executive Stephen Moon. Stephen, welcome, and thank you very much for coming in. Thank you. Now, Stephen, I'm partial to a bit of banana at the change of ends in a tennis match, and I've got no problem with Robinson squash. What is it that makes scientifically fueled products better for athletes, and can we be sure that protein shakes and carbohydrates are not just another fad? Yeah. Oh, well, thanks for the lead in, Megan, anyway. Um, Andy Murray's a good example of uh, the type of elite athlete we use. Andy's used science and sport products probably for the last six or seven years now. You'll see the pace of the game now. Uh, guys like Murray and Djokovic playing for four or five hours at a fairly intense pace. Uh, so fuel and rehydration are key to those guys. So we'll ensure that Andy has enough energy. So we uh, tailor make isotonic gels for him so he can get energy quickly to his body. And we'll tailor rehydration drinks, which is what you see him glugging from the large bottle between <laughs> sets, actually. So, yeah, five hours is a pretty good stint at any event. Uh, the human body will tend to uh, start to run out of steam at about an hour and a half, uh, regardless of the condition of the athlete. So, um you're right to uh, look at the old days of Robinson's, but uh, just about in any athletic endeavour over the last 20, 15 and 10 years, the pace of all sports has gone up. Nutrition's become essential. It wasn't too long ago, I remember things like professional soccer teams doing the old routine of steak before a game, <laughs> etc. And it just doesn't cut the mustard anymore. So um, nutrition is a 24-hour-a-day, pretty much around the year, discipline for any decent professional athlete these days. And we've been fortunate enough to um, get our toe through that door, and we deal with most of the big professional teams and sports across the world. Mm, yeah, and I suppose as the stakes have become higher as well financially in sport and nutrition's making such a difference and i can see how it matters for the elite mm. sports people but mm. on the amateur side of things does the science actually matter does the fact that your products are the best scientifically um does that matter to them or are they more looking at the branding the pricing it should matter to them i'm a case in point really i'm older than i'd like to admit to mm. and I'm, I'm not a natural athlete but i uh, for example last year i did 300 mile cycling events pretty arduous ones and it's just a physiological fact that w without taking on board gels and electrolytes during that event, I wouldn't have got to the end of them. So it's a sort of mistake to try and separate the elite from uh, the, the elite from the weekend warrior. It, yeah. It's going to benefit anyone, really. Yeah. Um, we sometimes get a bit of stick when we see people like uh, park run runners using our product. But, but actually, for, for any decent sporting event, whether it's a quick trip to the gym or, or a park run and anything beyond that, even being decently hydrated helps everyone. It helps them perform better and recover better. 
on the amateur side of things, um, have you found that those users are looking at the they're looking at the science, or is it the fact that you've spent a bit more marketing in the last few years and you've got the brand out there? Is that what you think has made the difference? A couple of things, really. I mean, fun, I mean, fundamentally, the brand was. The brand was founded with elite sports people. And my background is I used to work for a, a much larger sports drink company. It will remain nameless, but <laughs> wouldn't take much guessing. And um, the issue with that was every time we showed that drink to an elite athlete, they sort of found it quite amusing. They didn't regard it as credible. So um, so eventually I left the big business and, and bought this small business because I thought that I, I, I thought that it was an opportunity coming up in sports nutrition. So... Um, so we started to build from that platform. We've had more and more elite athletes and teams involved in using our products and indeed developing our products. And what happens is the uh, the marathon runner or the person getting ready for a sportive cycling event, they'll tend to look at what whatever the professionals are using. Yeah. Um, so so there is a trickle down effect, um, and, and we've been sure to capitalise on that. But there's a real genuine reason the pros are using it, which which sort of underpins it. So. Um, we do a lot of scientific testing. Uh, we develop a lot of new products in conjunction with the elite athletes. So, so there's a real underpinning to the brand. But then we'll go on and spend quite a substantial amount on marketing mm. and promotion every year. We'll spend around, be slightly over twenty percent of our net revenues will be spent on marketing each year. Okay. So, so, so we've had a bit of both. Really, we've had yeah. more and more elites. Plus, we've got the uh, awareness of the brand on a steady upward trend over the last few years. Yeah. Okay. So, just going back to the point you made about how sort of the the amateurs are following professionals. Of mm. one of your big links is British Cycling. Yeah. Which, when British Cycling are doing well, that's mm. great. Mm. But in the current environment of British Cycling, the fact that their reputation is not having the best of times, mm. do you still see that sort of relationship as one that benefits your brand? Yeah, Yes, we do, actually. Um, we, we, we've had an informal relationship with some of the British cycling guys leading up to the Olympics. We were tailor-making product for some of the athletes, and when the opportunity came up this year to uh, uh, link up with them formally uh, in the lead-up to Tokyo, we were, we were happy to take that. Mm. Um, there are there are over a hundred thousand members, so, so so we feel that we can get our message across to those hundred thousand members. There's a lot of new faces coming in, new chairman. I believe a new chief executive has been announced this morning. There's a new performance director, so there's a uh, there's a sort of uh, a series of new brooms sweeping whatever's going on at British Cycling. But just to reiterate, I mean, we found them incredibly professional to work with. So. Yeah, whatever the news says, it says. But our experience is that they're a pretty uh, professional bunch of people, so we're quite happy to be involved. Mm -hmm. Okay, and on that side of things, um, I suppose you could link it to the news around British Cycling at the moment, but one of the questions which the um, sports market likes to talk about a lot is obviously doping. And when sports nutrition is relying on science so much, where's the line between nutrition and doping? Yeah, I could give you a really long answer, but it's quite a short podcast. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it's yeah, a but, yeah, big question. Yeah, yeah, let me start with banned yeah. substances. So uh, let me state a fact to start with, that uh, science in sport has got the most rigorous banned substance uh, regime mm. in the industry. So uh, we own our own factory, Nelson, in Lancashire. We go far beyond any other sports nutrition company in terms of testing raw materials, testing finished product batches, testing the fabric of the factory, auditing suppliers, yeah, so we're pretty rigorous to start with. So we'll happily stand behind any product which leaves our 
factory the line between the line between nutrition and science is it's actually black and white so i um uh, I, I don't believe in all these people saying it's quite blurry on the edge etc etc in nutrition you're on one side of the line or you're on the other side of the line so we know exactly what substances can be used in our products and we know which can't because the water list is very clear it's 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 over 800 items none of which get included in our products and anyway, we're going to go on and test our products rigorously, the raw materials rigorously. So it's extremely important to a professional athlete. Um, it's important to remember that anytime there's a any sort of doping incident, quite often the nutrition partner gets dragged into the spotlight, mm, yeah. nearly always unfairly, mm. nearly always unfairly. But we've also got to have a sense of uh, perspective here in that actually the number of uh, doping issues reported is extremely tiny and we work with thousands of athletes who are just good hard-working people and and to keep flapping around the doping label in front of any professional sport is is incredibly unfair in, in any group of people a society or organization there'll always be a bad apple or two yeah i'm concerned with the other 99.9 percent of them you know yeah oh it's such an interesting topic i mean we could talk about that you can imagine yeah. how much i'm having to talk about it at the moment yeah, <laughs> yeah i'm sure but um yeah so back to the business it's a very competitive environment out mm. there you say mm. you came from a um mm. A different sports drink. Um, so, well, like Maxi Nutrition, owned by GSK, My Protein. They've got a lot of cash behind them. Yeah. Um, yeah. How do you compete with? Yeah, that's a cracking question. Like I actually came from Lucas Aid, which was okay. a, which yeah, was a Glaxo GSK, yeah. brand. Um, so, so if we take the UK as an example, I'd probably say the the market for specialist sports nutrition, protein and endurance nutrition, is probably worth about half a billion pounds at the moment. So. Maybe a little less than a third is endurance nutrition where we compete. And um, we're very conscious of our size, but it, it's, uh, it can be a weakness, but it's also an asset. So every time we uh, take our brand to a group of consumers, in, indeed take a group of brands to consumers, they'll, they'll see us as the most elite brand. So things like My Protein, which is a fabulous business, by the way, um, that's about volume and, and, and price. And we see ourselves as uh, about being premium science and, and spending a lot on keeping that positioning right, keeping the innovation pipeline. So we, we think there's a role for us. In the same way, something like Gucci's got a role in the era of Primark. You know, there's always a role for the premium brand, and that's what we're about, we're science innovation brand. And mm. we'll never apologise, and we'll never apologise for spending over 20% of our net revenue on, on positioning and supporting that brand. So I think there's a role for us. Um, we did... 12 and a quarter million of turnover last year which was 30 percent growth we, we we're aiming for another big year this year um if you go in our factory and and this isn't a forecast by the way if you go in our factory it says 50 million by 2020 so we think there's a a growth run, runway in front of us so mm -hmm. yeah we think there's room for us to play same mm -hmm. as in any industry yeah well the top line yeah looking great but the profit yeah not, yeah, not there at the moment, yeah, but yeah. Um, is it the marketing spend that's hampering your ability to turn a profit? Um, um, and have you got any profit forecasts? Have you got a time where you're... Yeah, if I tell you the story from the beginning. So we listed the business in 2012 and sat down with the bigger investors and said, we think we've got a growth runway in front of us, so, so let's go for it. 
And the, the sort of handshake at the time was we could grow for three years and lose a bit of cash at the EBITDA level, and then years four and five would become profitable. Anyway, we got to the end of the three years, and the business was really starting to grow. Mm-hmm. In fact, growth levels were accelerating. So we basically had the same sit down again and said, um, shall we go for it again? And it was a pretty unanimous, while there's growth on the table, in any industry, take it off the table. So you'll see that we made a modest loss at EBITDA in 2015. Um, our results are due soon. Mm-hmm. Uh, the brokers got us tagged for a, for another EBITDA loss this year, and we're quite happy with that. I, th- I think the really important thing to know is as we roll into 2017, our business is about brand and building our dot-com business and building new markets. And as we roll into 2017, our UK business is actually profitable. And the EBITDA losses that that you're seeing now are from our excursions into Australia, Italy, and the USA. So Mm. we're quite confident that underneath all of this is is a very healthy business. Mm. And uh, marketing, well, I I was going to say marketing is discretionary. It's not really. Marketing is discretionary. If you want to pull it out, you'll get low growth. International expansion is discretionary. Uh, we think it's there for the taking, but we can turn the switch off at any time. So I'm very happy that um, the underlying fundamentals of the business, I mean, we're coming off a 60% gross margin. We, we keep um, we keep overhead growth to single digits. Uh, we've got great operational leverage in the factory. We're, we're confident that we've got a clear pathway to profitability, but we're going to keep taking the growth while the growth is there. Okay. Um, yeah, so the margins, yeah, they're great at the moment. But at the moment, you have been able to keep increasing that top line very, mm. very rapidly. Yeah. And the margins have been able to stay strong. Yeah. In terms of the wider market, in terms of creating a really strong footprint, especially in the consumer market, do you not think perhaps your price is going to have to come down a little bit at some point? And if so, will that hold back your ability to turn a profit? I um, I don't think that sports need... Uh, yeah, let me answer it in two parts. I mean, I think in the protein market, you've got you've got uh, the hot group who you've already mentioned in there, mm-hmm. and a number of players, and they're sort mm-hmm. of taking wild punches at each other. And the net effect of that is pricing is tending to slide down. Whether it yeah. will ever return again, I don't know. In our industry, it, it's much more specialist. It doesn't seem to be that price sensitive. When somebody's spent five or six thousand quid on a bike, I'm not sure whether a gel is one twenty nine or one nineteen <laughs> is really affecting them that much. Serious, uh, you know, even weekend warriors regard themselves as serious, so they take the sport very seriously. And I don't think ten pence here and there is going to make a difference. We've got good relationships with our big customers like Wiggle, Tesco, Amazon, those sorts of people, and. Yeah, we, 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 we've never felt any real undue price pressure. Uh, we do collaborate with big customers on things like um, promotional campaigns that work for both. So price doesn't appear to be an issue. We're confident that the margin is going to stay north of 60% Brexit and no Brexit. So, yeah. That's great. And then I guess just finally, what's the big picture? What's the end goal for science and sport? Because, mm. I mean, Maxi Nutrition was taken over by GSK. Yeah. Um, £162 million they paid for that when the sales were running at 36 million. I mean, you're, you're encroaching on that 36 million pound mm, sales mm, revenue quite mm, quickly. Mm, yeah. Is a similar sort of outcome what you're looking for or is it something completely different? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a, it's the it's the question I probably get asked most after what my name is. Yeah, um, so so uh, there is always big corporate interest in dynamic growth companies because in this world growth is hard to come by. Um, it's pretty apparent that sports nutrition in any market around the world is probably growing about ten percent a year, and yeah. if you compare that to commodity food, it's it has to look attractive. I understand even now that a large company is taking a position in one of our competitors. So, so there is corporate interest in our sector. We've had, um, shall I call it, informal approaches. And to be honest, we're not really interested at this stage. Our poster inside the factory door, 50 million by 2020, shows we think the business has got legs. And it also gives you a hint of our timeline. We, we, this isn't for us a real... Uh, build it and flip it sort of story we think we think this business has got legs and we're only just getting started in territories such as the u.s and australia we're doing our homework in south korea and japan so we think this we think the story's got a long way to run so we're flattered by any interest but we're not really interested in the interest okay well that's great thank you i think we'll leave it there Stephen moon thanks very much for coming in it's been great to talk to you and thank you for listening to this episode of boardroom talk you can find more of those on our website 